second message in the Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. We will be looking at verses uh, 3 to 6 this morning, uh, but read along with me from verse 1 to 6 for context. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, because of your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words, these words which Paul penned to express his emotions concerning this church, but more than that, concerning your church in general, concerning the work of Christ in establishing his church, and that that work initiated by him, completed by him, cannot be undone. We have hope not in our works, not in our righteousness, not in the things that we could do, should do, or um, ought to do, would do. But our hope is in what Christ has done on our behalf. Lord, as we look at this passage, help us open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our mind to understand, our heart to receive the good word which you have written for our benefit. And Lord, as I preach your word, I pray that my words would be your words and your words would go forth in power and precision to impact the hearts and minds of your people for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. One of the main character qualities of a Christian and Christianity in general is thankfulness. And, uh, you know, many people say thank you. Um, many people give thanks. In fact, um, if you're learning a new language, um, how to say thank you is one of those first few words probably um, in the top 10 or 20 to say thank you to someone, just a, a natural um, politeness that you should know to give thanks. But I believe that giving thanks, thankfulness, um, can only really stem from a Christian worldview, from Christianity. I believe that only Christianity could create a holiday of thanksgiving. And uh, we see thankfulness all throughout this letter. It's one of the primary reasons why Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians was to thank them for their support of him. But he not only thanks them for their support, but as he writes here, he thanks God. He says, I thank my God. This is a, a thank you letter. Um, but his thanks is not just for the Philippians, but for God's work in the church at Philippi. 
I thank my God, uh, uh, not just a thanks to God, as e even some unbelievers can um, say uh, thanks be to God or, or thank God um, when they're um, delivered from something, uh, from a horrible accident or, or, or some other calamity. They can say thank God, um, but only Christians, only we can say thank my God. I thank my God. There, there's a personal relationship there, an intimate relationship, which Paul is alluding to. And he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Every time he thinks of them, he, he thanks his God, his relationship with God, and that they also have a relationship with God. And this um, thanks flows throughout the whole letter. Dr. Will Varner, in his commentary on Philippians, he writes that Paul has a special affection for the first of his churches planted on European soil. This Thanksgiving section in verses 3 to 11 is the longest of any Pauline letter. He assures them that they have a special place in his heart and that he has a longing for them because of their sharing in his apostolic work and suffering. The church of Philippi was special to Paul. It was special because, as you um, may remember or you read in Acts 16, Acts chapter 16, that he came to uh, Philippi. It was, one of the, it was the first church that was established on European soil after he had received the, the vision in, in Troas of a man from Macedonia saying, come over here and help us. And he was able, even up until that point, he's, he says that he was restricted by the Holy Spirit from going, from proceeding further. Um, but then he saw the vision and God sent him into Europe and the first city. He comes into Philippi where the, the, the first church was planted, not far inland from the sea. And uh, it wasn't just that this was the first church, but just his welcoming. There were trials in that church. But uh, from the point in which the church was established uh, up until um, his imprisonment um, in Rome, and even further on, we, we see that the church at Philippi, they supported him. They supported him. Well, he, he doesn't say anything really um, bad about the church at Philippi in this letter or in other parts of, um, of the New Testament. We don't see anything particularly wrong. His letter is not corrective. Um, he does warn them about things. He does compel them to excel still more. But he really writes this to thank them. This, this whole letter is a, a letter of thanks to them. And especially this first section, he thanks them. And in this passage, these few verses... We see um, as he begins, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you. And then he goes on and, and there's reasons. He lists reasons why he thanks them. And in this particular passage, these few verses, we see three reasons why Paul thanks God for the church at Philippi. First, Paul gives thanks to God because of the joy they bring him. As he says, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. He thanks God for the joy that they bring him. John Calvin, he commented on this passage by saying, It is to be observed that whenever he makes mention of things that are joyful, he immediately breaks forth into thanksgiving, a, a practice which 
we ought to also be familiar with. That ought to be our, our second nature. And as I said in the beginning, uh, thanks, it, it should be a premier uh, Christian quality or, or characteristic of offering thanks, of being thankful, of, of giving thanksgiving. And, and many of you can testify that in your prayers, and I've heard many of you pray that oftentimes, more often than not, I hear thanks. Thank you, God. Thank you for this. Thank you for um, your sacrifice. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for my relationships, for the things that you give me, for the peace, prosperity, for the uh, food, shelter, and clothing. Uh, thanksgiving should just roll off our tongues. It should be on our minds always. Uh, we should have, as uh, many have said, an attitude of gratitude. We should be thankful. But there's also a sense that thankfulness is connected with joy. With joy. And when we, when we focus on those things, when we're, uh, our heart is filled with joy, it should naturally overflow into thanksgiving. And, and Paul here, he gives thanks because of the joy they bring him. First, in his memories. In his memories, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. His memories of his times with them from the beginning, even as we can read in Acts 16, as he comes to Philippi and, and he um, is looking for as his um, MO, his modus operandi of uh, his uh, missionary strategy was to go to um, the Jews first. As he even says, the gospel went to the Jews first and then extended out to the Gentiles. So he would try to find um, some Jews first wherever he went, uh, a synagogue if there was, because um, it was through the Jews that uh, the word of God came. And so he had some sort of foundation, some starting point with the Jews. And so he um, goes to Philippi and he, he finds that there is no synagogue there. They needed at least 10 men. But then he goes to the river because he hear, hears that um, there were some women praying there. And there he meets Lydia. He meets Lydia and he's able to um, share with her. And, uh, and then he goes and he baptizes her whole household. They, they meet in her house, and they established a church there. And then as we read further in Acts 16, that there is some trouble. Um, Paul and Silas get put in jail, and they're in jail, and then there's, uh, they're singing hymns in the jail, and there's, there's uh, an earthquake, and then uh, some of the prisoners, their, their, their shackles are released. And, um, but then... Uh, Paul assures the Philippian jailer that um, none have escaped because he was about to kill himself. And then the Philippian jailer himself, we, we hear that, that phrase, what must I do to be saved? And the Philippian jailer comes to faith and he receives them in his own house. And, and uh, it's just so, such a, a series of events of adventure, of excitement, of seeing God's work in them that uh, Paul probably had great memories, great memories of his initial time in Philippi of, of, in a sense, planting that church. But then he wasn't there long and he got kicked out and uh, they fled to Thessalonica. And um, even in Thessalonica, as he would explain that um, the Philippians still provided support. 
They still sent him support. They still um, sent messengers to him as he would go along in his missionary travels to see how he was. They, they cared for him. They were concerned about him. And this gives Paul joy that um, he, he wells up with joy and thankfulness in, in all his memories of his times with them. This makes me think of um, James chapter 1 and, and verse 2 in that, that um, verse that is uh, often memorized, should be memorized, uh, alluded to, uh, referenced to um, in the midst of trial or, or in, in, the, in teaching on joy that James says, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith brings about perseverance and let perseverance have its perfect work so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. As James says, consider it all joy, everything, all of it. The, the, the good times, the bad times, the trials, the afflictions. Um, consider it all joy because you recognize that it's from the hand of God, that God has ordained it. And this is, in a sense, what Paul does. This is um, throughout his whole letter, throughout his whole life, that he um, considers it all joy. And yes, there is times when we can read in his epistles and his writings where um, he is troubled, where he is burdened with concern and uh, afflictions and, and trials, but yet we see that he is joyful. And throughout this letter, as um, I said in the last week, that um, the key word, the key theme throughout this letter is joy. So we see that Paul gives thanks um, to the Philippians because of the joy they bring him in his memories. And, and also in his memories of um, their support of him. His memories of their support of him that... Um, he remembers not just the trials, his times with them, personally with them, but um, their support of him that would continue. And this also brings him joy as um, John writes in 3 John 1. We, we hear this verse that we say often, we, we speak of it concerning children walking in the faith, that, that John writes, I have no greater joy than this to hear that my children are walking in the truth. This is a joy that Paul um, has in his memories of the Philippians. That they are walking in the truth. That they are faithful. That they are supporting him. And second, um, Paul gives thanks to God because of the joy they bring him in his prayers. Not just in his memories, but in his prayers. As he goes on, he says, um, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Always. There's always joy in my prayer when I think of you, when I remember you, when I pray for you. Always, implying that there is not a prayer of his for them that is not with joy. And you know, oftentimes we can, we can pray for people and we can be deeply concerned, deeply troubled, worried, anxious, fearful of maybe the path they're going on or the trial they're in the midst of or um, their unwise decisions or just the... Uh, the track record of their bad decisions or bad character. 
but Paul says he always offers prayer with joy concerning the Philippians. Every time he prays for them, it's, it's with joy. You notice he says, uh, in my every prayer for you all, you all, all y'all, as we say, all y'all, every single one of you. I remember I had a, a professor who was um, from the deep south, and he had a thick southern accent. And he always say, he'd come to these passages, not just here, but there's several places in the New Testament where you see you all, all y'all. And he'd say, Paul was a southerner. He's like, also say, I don't have an accent, you do. <laughs> but we, we hear that, that phrase, you all, all y'all, every single one of you. Even the, the worst one, I, I, think, I think of all you all, every one of you, in my every prayer. It's not just a blanket prayer, it's not just a generalized prayer. But I pray for every single one of you, and I pray with joy. I think of you often. I like what John MacArthur writes in his commentary concerning joy because, you know, we have different um, concepts of joy and sometimes we mix those concepts with the um, concept of happiness or um, other good feelings. But John MacArthur, he writes this concerning joy. He says, Christian joy is not a giddy, superficial happiness that can be devastated by illness, economic difficulties, broken relationships, or the countless other vicissitudes and disappointments of life. Instead, it flows from the deep, unshakable confidence that God is eternally in control of every aspect of life for the good of His beloved children. A confidence rooted in the knowledge of His Word, God's character, the saving work of Christ, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, divine providence, spiritual blessings, the promise of future glory, answered prayer, and Christian fellowship all cause the believer to rejoice. In essence, it's the, the spiritual um, aspects. It's the spiritual things. Uh, you know, sometimes we um, can go and try to cheer somebody up who's down, or, or even ourselves. When we're down or we're frustrated or, or anxious or worried, we can uh, try to cheer ourselves up and, and in essence, um, try to make a case as, as a good lawyer, make a case for why we should be joyful or happy. And more often than not, we start with our circumstances. Well, I'm not in prison. I'm not in a POW camp or, you know, I'm not disabled or, you know, we can list all these negative things that we aren't experiencing. And then we can start with all the positive things that we do experience. I, I do have a job and a home and I have relationships and I have all these things. But more often than not, we look at the physical and earthly blessings to make a case for our joy or our happiness. When we should first go to those spiritual aspects, those spiritual blessings that we have. Because earthly blessings, physical blessings, natural blessings, they come and go. They're temporal. But our spiritual blessings are eternal. And that's where our joy should be based in. And if our joy is based in that, then we will be thankful. And we'll be uh, a people that, that gives thanks. So first we see in this section as Paul um, thanks the Philippians. We first see that Paul gives thanks to God because of the joy they bring him. And second, because of their partnership with 
him, their partnership with him. He goes on, he says, um, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy, my every prayer for you all, because of your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Because of their fellowship in the gospel, their partnership with him. This term fellowship, we, we use it often of um, Christians gathering together, enjoying one another, encouraging one another, uh, comforting one another, counseling one another. It, it, it's, it's, in a sense, the context in which we practice those one another commands which God has commanded us to uh, carry out. Uh, there's roughly approximately 31 one another commands in the New Testament um, that stem, in essence, from uh, loving one another, counseling one another, encouraging one another, admonishing one another. And we carry out these one another commands, usually in that context of fellowship. But more often than not, um, we, I think we diminish this term of fellowship. We, we diminish it because we sometimes just view it more along the lines of socializing, which socializing is good. It's a good thing. It's a good thing to get together, to um, have a meal together, to um, enjoy time together, or even um, some uh, recreation, some event, or um, sport, or game together. That's a good thing. But everybody does that. Every group of people does that. Um, every religion does that. Um, you can go to, um, you know, go into a, a Muslim temple or a, a Jewish synagogue or a, a Mormon temple or whatever false religion, and you can see people doing the same sorts of socializing that we do. You can see it in those um, social organizations such as like the Elks Lodge or the Moose Club or the Rotary Club, they all do the same. And sometimes they're, you know, sad to say, sometimes they may be even better at socializing than some Christian churches. I remember ministering to um, a person on hospice and they were talking about um, how uh, their... Um, their husband, this lady, uh, they lost a, a husband um, earlier, and now they're on hospice, and how they were members of the Elks Lodge, and they would have wonderful potlucks together and wonderful times together, and then even the Elks Lodge even um, gathered some money up together to help pay for their funeral. But that's a secular organization. They don't have true fellowship. And this word, which many of you know, underlying from which fellowship is translated, is koinonia. Its true meaning is really um, partnership. Fellowship, that socializing, that getting together, that enjoying time with one another, that's part of it. But there's a deeper meaning of, of partnership in something. Some sort of purpose, some sort of mission, some sort of... Uh, 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 organization, some sort of group that is committed to one thing, a partnership. This is what Paul thanks them for their partnership with him in the gospel from the first day until now. And that fellowship, that partnership with him, it begins in Christ. 
It begins in Christ. Fellowship, true fellowship, can only happen in Christ. Uh, fellowship with one another begins in union with Christ, union with one another, one body. As, uh, as one commentator writes, uh, one of Paul's favorite ways of describing the believer's union with Christ is fellowship. He says this, this phrase, or, or in Christ, rather, this phrase occurs ten times in Philippians. This phrase, in Christ, and he will say that again and again, in Christ, in different contexts. He, he wants to emphasize that, and he emphasizes it in other writings, um, especially in Romans chapter 6, uh, in Christ, that we are in Christ, that we had died with Christ, we have been buried with Christ, and we will be raised with Christ as well. That we are one body in Christ. It's, it's the basis uh, for true fellowship. It's found only in our union with Christ, which, interestingly enough, is the result of the gospel. The, the basis for true fellowship is the result of the gospel, which is also the goal of our fellowship, the gospel. I'd like you to turn with me to 1 John in chapter 1. In 1 John chapter 1, we... We read this, um, how, how John um, explains this fellowship in Christ, with Christ, and how that extends to fellowship with one another. 1 John 1 and verse 1 to 7, he writes this, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you may also have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we are writing, so that our joy may be made complete. And this is a message we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not do the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. Christian fellowship, fellowship with one another begins with fellowship with God. Fellowship with God through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. That's the only way you can have true fellowship. It starts in Christ. And notice how even um, as uh, Paul writes um, in these two themes of joy, thankfulness, and then fellowship, that also John writes, uh, connects fellowship with joy as well. Fellowship and joy. They're connected, as well as thankfulness and joy. Their partnership, the Philippians' partnership with Paul, began first in Christ, and then second, look at this, it overflowed in ministry. He says, he um, offers prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all because of your fellowship in the gospel. In the gospel. Their fellowship was based in the gospel. It was a partnership in the gospel, in ministry. That they, they began to, uh, from the first day, to partner with Paul, with one another, 
to proclaim the gospel, to uh, provide hospitality and service to one another, to give, all for the sake of the gospel. Fellowship uh, is rooted in Christ, in the gospel, and it overflows into ministry. D.A. Carson, he wrote this, he said, The heart of true Christian fellowship is self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision, namely to the gospel. And, and, you know, this is not just true in the Christian life, but it's true in every organization, secular organizations. You, you cannot have uh, unity, you, you cannot have um, uh, cooperation within an organization if, if uh, everyone isn't committed to the mission of that organization. If everyone doesn't understand the purpose of that organization, then it will be uh, fractured. It will be splintered. There won't be unity. There has to be a shared vision. There has to be a shared purpose, an understanding of the mission of the organization. And this is true for the church. That in order for us to have true partnership, true fellowship, true unity, it begins in understanding the mission and the purpose of the church. It begins in the gospel. It begins with uh, Christ. In any and everything uh, we do, it should promote the gospel. That's how we have uh, fellowship. That's how we have unity. In our, our praying, our giving, our hospitality, our counseling, our preaching and teaching, it should uh, stem from and flow out of the gospel. I'd like you to turn over a page or two in, in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. This is in essence, uh, Paul lists how they have uh, partnered with him in ministry. At, at the end of this thank you letter, he says in Philippians 4.10, he says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived thinking about me. Indeed, you were thinking about me before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in abundance. In any and all things, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry. Of both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to fellowship with me in my affliction. And you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church fellowshiped with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs." Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek the fruit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I have been filled, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God, and my God will fulfill all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. We see it wasn't just the initial receiving of Paul and the gospel and, and supporting him initially while he was um, in Philippi and, and in the jail and then sending him off, but that their partnership continued with him in ministry, in everything. And Paul thanks the Philippians for their partnership with him, not only because it was grounded in their union in Christ, nor just that it overflowed in ministry, which is 
expected that your um, partnership would overflow in ministry from your union with Christ, in Christ. But he thanks them that their partnership was also in continuity. He thanks God for their partnership with him in Christ, in ministry, and in continuity. As he goes on in, in uh, verse 5 of chapter 1, he says, um, because of your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. From the first day until now. You were always in partnership with me. You were always on board. You were always there supporting me. You were always faithful. Your partnership was continuous from the very first day. Go to Acts 16, and uh, I want you to see this. And, and just by way of reminder, Acts chapter 16 and, and verses 11 to 15, um, you know, we see the beginning of Acts 16, and, and uh, Paul meets uh, Timothy, and then he goes on um, into uh, Macedonia and plants a church at Philippi. But here in uh, Acts chapter 16 and verse 11 to 15, we read this um, first account. As he says, he, he heads off from, um, in a sense, from Asia, from Asia Minor, and goes to Macedonia, to Europe. And it says, so setting sail from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in this city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, when we went outside the gate to a riverside, where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer, and sitting down, we began speaking to the women who had assembled. And a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening whose heart the Lord opened to pay attention to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. From the very first day, we see it's somewhat exciting how, how quickly um, the gospel took root and the church took root from the very first day. And they continued in that faithfulness to Paul to support him through gifts, through hospitality, through messengers, through Epaphroditus send, being sent to him to see how he was doing. And then he says, until now, from the first day until now, your fellowship in the gospel has not waned, it has not wavered, but you have shown yourselves faithful. You have shown yourselves to be faithful companions, faithful sidekicks, faithful partners in gospel ministry. Your faithfulness and service in the past can, um, can not be, um, it can't waver, Philippians, that your faithfulness and service in the past, it, it's almost indefatigable, indefatigable <laughs> or indomitable or um, unwavering. That you are unlike all the other churches, as he would proclaim later at the end of, um, of this letter. That you support me, you were in there, you were with me through thick and thin. And so we see first that, that Paul gives thanks to God because of the joy that the Philippians bring him. Second, because of their partnership with him. 
and last and most importantly because of God's working in them. God's working in them. As he says in verse 6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. This is a key verse in this passage, in this chapter. It's a verse I'm sure many of you have memorized. Um, I have memorized. It's, it's a verse of comfort, a, a verse of encouragement, a, a, a verse we go to when our faith is shaken. And Paul writes this um, to allude to God's work in them. That's why he's so thankful for them, why he finds so much joy in them. And he also writes it to encourage them, to continue on, to excel still more. And here we see in this short little verse, there are three primary aspects of God's work in them. And by extension to all believers and to us, three primary aspects of God's work in them, which Paul is thankful for. First, God's work in salvation. In salvation, he says, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, began a good work from the beginning, which um, all the works of God, they, they start with salvation in the church. They, they, we, in a sense, um, you know, there's many, um, sad to say, many unbelievers in churches um, and many Churches, they have um, perhaps more unbelievers than believers. Um, but there's many unbelievers that find themselves in churches and that even serve. And they do good works. And maybe even in false churches. In the name of God, they do good works. But those works really aren't they're really not acceptable. They're not pleasing. The, the motive of that is probably out of self-righteousness or trying to earn favor with God. But all of uh, God's works, all of his true works, uh, a work that is pleasing to God, it begins with salvation, with God bringing us to faith. This is... The primary work of God which we are thankful for, which we rejoice in, which we hope in, which we proclaim, which we find our encouragement in, in which Paul is, uh, encourages the Philippians in. That, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He's thankful for God's working in them in salvation, a salvation which was decreed by God in eternity past, a salvation which was initiated by God through the power of the Holy Spirit, a salvation which was completed by God in the person and works of Jesus Christ, a salvation which cannot be undone. You cannot lose it. You are secure in Christ if you are in Christ because this was a work that began in God. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. And, and this is you know, where we find our hope and our comfort and our joy and our salvation in, in, in the fact that it, it wasn't dependent upon us. It wasn't initiated by us. It, it wasn't completed by us. Um, it wasn't 
in our minds. We, we were far from God. We were not seeking God. Um, God saw us. God came, as, as Jesus said, to seek and to save that which is lost. And Paul writes to Ephesians in chapter 1, in verses 3 to 6, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He chose us before all things were created. He chose us, those of us who are in him. And he goes on that we would be holy and blameless before him in love by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his, of his grace, which he graciously bestowed on us in the Beloved. Our salvation was a salvation which was decreed by God in eternity past. And it was a salvation which was initiated by God through the power of the Holy Spirit that any um, good and honest testimony will say that, you know, I, I didn't know, I just ran into this person or this person just saw me and, and they, they shared with me about Jesus Christ or they gave me a gospel track or for some reason I felt like I should go to church or, you know, I was um, in this, um, this group of friends in, in, in college or at work and, and this, this person um, said that they were a Christian, they started to share with me. Um, most testimonies will have that sense in which... Um, there's God's providence at work. And we will see God working and drawing us and bringing us to himself. This was what Jesus um, says in John chapter 6 and, and verse 37 to 39. That whole section of uh, John chapter 6 in, in, in which Jesus is in a sense uh, showing us the sovereignty of God in salvation of his grace. As Jesus says to um, his disciples and the Jews all around him. He's, in a sense, refuting the Jews, and his disciples are there, and there's all sorts of bystanders in, in John chapter 6, and he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. If you're in Christ, you are, in a sense, a gift of the Father to Jesus Christ. Your salvation was decreed by God in eternity past. It was initiated by God through the power of the Holy Spirit and drawing us to God. As Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. We are, um, we are in a sense, kept by him. As this verse, verse 6 of Philippians 1, is not just a, a verse of uh, great comfort and encouragement of hope, but it's a verse that alludes to the eternal security of the believer. That one we're, as many of us have heard and been taught in, in church, that once saved, always saved. We cannot lose our salvation because it did not begin with us. It wasn't accomplished by us. And it's not kept by us. 
were kept by him. As Peter says in his epistle, 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, he says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Who has caused it? God has caused it. God has caused us to be born again. Peter goes on to obtain an inheritance which is incorruptible and undefiled and unfading, having been kept in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is why Paul says he is confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Because that, that work is, is all in God. It's initiated by God, it's decreed by God, it's completed by God, we are kept by God. You know, oftentimes I um, think of um, those... Uh, Shows in which you, you can watch on, um, on uh, Home Improvement Channel or, or certain, certain uh, TV shows where they, they restore an old house. Or they, um, people go and they find antiques and they restore them and sell them. Or they, they find an old car. Um, and and the, the car ones are, are something that I'm really familiar with. Not because I was ever got involved in restoring old cars. I, I just felt like that was too much work. But many of the um, young men and, and people I grew up with got involved in restoring old cars. And uh, I can't think of any one of them that ever completed it. <laughs> many of them didn't get far. Many of them it, it, it didn't drive. And, and somebody had to say, either a wife or a parent said, get rid of that thing because you're not, it's just taking up the garage. But sometimes you'll see these shows where they go and they go to restore an old car and they find it in a junkyard and it's just full of rust and um, it's something about that car. The model is special and, and they get to working on it and there's rust and they, they just start grinding off the rust and then they have to cut off a whole part and, and some of them are really bad. They get down to the, to the frame. They've cut apart most of the car and it's just the frame and then they even have to blast the rust off the frame and, and I watch these shows and I'm like, why don't you just buy a new car? Just buy the whole parts. But they finish it. They restore it. They show the before and after. This is kind of a picture of God in, in us. That there's not much in us that's of worth or redeemable. But he redeems us and he completes that work. He will complete it. If he began it, he will complete it. He will bring it to completion. He, he will perfect it. And this is why Paul is thankful for God's working in them because God's work in salvation, but second, God's work in sanctification. As, you know, we can read in, in, in throughout the, the um, New Testament and ma many pastors and theologians have said that we are saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. And we, the, the point at our salvation, um, we, we are usually rejoicing, we are usually happy, but um, we don't realize how sinful we are. And then as we grow in faith, and we, we, it's almost um, 
we wonder, are, are we sliding backwards? Am I getting worse or am I just realizing how bad I really am? And that's where God is setting us apart. This, this word called, and this doctrine called sanctification, a, a setting apart of being made holy. That this is a work or a process in which a saint is progressively made holy. That, that this is a, a, also a synergistic work. That we are called to work out our salvation, as Paul says in Philippians 2, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But then he goes on and he says, For it is God who has at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That we are called to put away sin and to put on holiness and righteousness and press on towards um, holy behavior and holy character and holy living and, and obeying every one of God's commands. But as Paul says, it, it's not just us who works, but God that's working in us. And it's really, ultimately, God who does the work. But we are also called to do the work. And that's the second reason why Paul is thankful for God's working in them because that not only has God saved them, has God called them out of uh, eternal death and, and sinfulness and into his um, kingdom of light, but that he's working in them. He's, he's working out their salvation. He's, in a sense, making them holy. And thirdly, Paul is thankful for God's working in them in glorification. In glorification that he says that... that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He will continue to work it out, continue to complete it, continue to perfect it until that day in which he brings it to complete perfection when Jesus Christ comes down and reveals himself. In which we are what we, uh, the Bible says and what we uh, term as glorification or being glorified. In which the sin is completely taken out of us this glorification it's the end state of redemption it's the final product it's the goal it's the reason why God has saved us in in order to conform us into the image of Christ I'd like you to turn with me to Romans chapter 8 and this is probably the 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 most comprehensive dealing with um, our salvation our sanctification our glorification that whole process of being made holy of being conformed into the image of his son and, and we're familiar with this passage at the end of Romans chapter 8 or we should be familiar with it it's a passage that many of us have memorized that many many of us go to in times of despair a, a, a passage we go to for hope for comfort a passage you go to in the midst of trials that um, Paul says in Romans 8.28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. He says all things work together for good. All The, the good, the bad, and the ugly will turn out for good because it, 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 God is using it. God has decreed our circumstances and our trials, and He's using it for good. Because as he goes on, because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And this is a verse I want you to look at. Verse 30, he says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. 
This is what theologians, pastors call the golden chain of redemption. That we are predestined in eternity past. We are called by the Holy Spirit, called to the Father, called by the Father to the Son. We are drawn. We are justified through faith in Christ and faith alone in Christ. Justified, considered just, not, not holy, but considered just based on the righteousness of Christ, based on his works. And then those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's Paul writes this in, in, in a, a completed uh, verb tense. That, that, that uh, glorification, it, it's completed. It's a done deal. Because he's predestined us, he's called us, he's justified us, and he will glorify us. And that's what's really at the heart of this verse here in Philippians 1.6 is that doctrine of the perseverance of the saints or eternal security. And I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That he will lose no one. He will lose no one. Uh, Listen to what MacArthur and Mayhew write in their biblical doctrine. They say this, The eternal security of the true believer in Christ is ultimately found on the preserving nature of the triune God. First, the believer's security is grounded in the unchanging love, infinite power, and saving will of the Father. Salvation began in eternity past when God set his saving love on his elect and granted them grace in Christ Jesus, appointing Christ to be their mediator. Scripture describes this decree as the Father giving the elect to the Son and predestining them to be conformed to the Son's image. It is impossible for those whom the Father has predestined to Christ's likeness to fail to attain that end. For those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In these verses, Paul presents the events of redemption as an unbreakable chain of God's sovereign grace. The final consummation of the believer's salvation is so certain and sure that Paul can speak of the justified one as if he has already been glorified. He who began a good work in you will perfect it. He will complete it. Until the day of Christ Jesus. This is why Paul can have such joy and thankfulness in the midst of trials. It's also why he can write in Romans 8.18. You look up, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. That our trials cannot be compared, our, our suffering cannot be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. That we will be glorified. And, and he, he says that the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. And when will it be revealed? When will it be revealed? He says here in, in, in verse 6 of chapter 1 of Philippians, at the day of Christ Jesus. At the day of Christ Jesus. It will be revealed. We will be revealed as glorified. Those of us who are in Christ, who have been born again, who have been saved, we will be revealed as glorified at the day of Jesus Christ when Jesus Christ descends from heaven to rule and reign in righteousness. We will be glorified with him. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 
2 Thessalonians chapter 1, which interestingly enough, Thessalonica was a city which Paul and Silas fled to after Philippi. And here we read in Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians in chapter 1, as he also um, intends to encourage them in the midst of suffering, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of trial, to encourage them in their faith. And he writes this, 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 3, We ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is only fitting, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of each one of you all toward one another increases all the more. So we ourselves boast about you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering, since it is right for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give rest to you who are afflicted, and to us as well at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven, with his mighty angels in flaming fire, executing vengeance on those who do not know God, and get this, to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our witness to you was believed. We who are in Christ will be perfected in the image of Christ and be revealed in glory with Christ as he returns and reveals his own glory. And as we read here in 2 Thessalonians 1, we see that as the Bible consistently proclaims in other passages, that there's only two types of people in the world. There's the blessed and the wicked, as Psalm 1 says, the blessed man and the wicked. There are those on the broad path that leads to destruction and those who are on the narrow way which leads to eternal life, as Jesus said. There are those who are in Christ and those who are outside of Christ, who do not know God, who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is to repent and believe upon him, so that you may, as Paul writes, gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of your own, but that which is from God. And we're called to obey the gospel. We, as believers, are saved by the gospel. We are sanctified, in a sense, by the gospel and the um, implications and applications of the gospel. We proclaim the gospel to others that they are to obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, to repent and believe so that they may be found in Christ, that they may receive these blessings of Christ and may know him may be conformed to his image so that they can be confident of this very thing which Paul writes, which he is confident as well, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's the ground of our hope and joy and it's why we are thankful. There's a hymn which I would like to sing in church someday and I, I think of Um, several hymns that I enjoy and I love and I would like to sing but some of those hymns uh, I'm concerned that I might not be able to get through all of it without breaking down because they're just 
so beautiful and have such an impact on me emotionally. One of those hymns is this hymn called Complete in Thee. This is a hymn that was written by the Reverend Aaron Wolf in 1858. And I'm just going to read a couple verses. And this hymn, I, I love this hymn. And he, he writes this, he, he wrote this hymn, this minister. He says, Complete in thee, no work of mine. May take, dear Lord, the place of thine. Thy blood hath pardoned bought for me. And I am now complete in thee. And then the refrain, Yea, justified, O blessed thought. And sanctified salvation wrought. Thy blood hath pardoned bought for me. And glorified I too shall be. Because of his work. Because it was he who began a good work in us, in me. He will bring it to completion. He will perfect it. Because he has saved you. Because he has saved me or anyone that's in Christ. He will sanctify you and he will glorify you. And this is why Paul was so thankful. It's why he was so joyful. It's, it's why he prayed continually and why he had so much hope despite his circumstances. And, uh, it's, and I pray that that would be true for all of us as well. That we would base our hope, our joy, our thankfulness in this work that began in Christ and will be completed in Christ for his glory. It's the basis for all our hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the work of Jesus Christ. We thank you for choosing us, those of us who are in you before the foundation of the world. We thank you for drawing us to Christ. We thank you for Christ's work, for sending him to live a life that none of us could live, to die the death that we all deserve to die, to purchase salvation for us. We thank you for your sanctifying work in us, even though oftentimes it's hard as we are confronted with our sin and our failures. We thank you for enabling us with the power to uh, fight sin and to um, press on towards holiness and to be righteous. Lord, most of all, we thank you that for those of us who are in you, that we will be with you. And you who began a good work in us will complete it at the day of Christ Jesus. Lord, we long for that day. Help us to live in light of that day and to proclaim that day to others. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.